Uh, good morning. Uh, while it is good to be sharing the word with you today, I would much rather it not be at the expense of Pastor Dave and a bad flu bug, but tis the season, I think, as we all know. Uh, and so I'd like to do a uh, continuation, uh, a part two, if I may, of a message that I preached back on New Year's Eve. That's not too long ago. Uh, you may recall we were finishing up a Christmas sermon series on the miraculous births in the Bible. And my assignment was to examine Abraham and Sarah and the miraculous birth of Isaac. And if you remember anything about that message, we explored the difference between really a miracle and the caring providence of God. Uh, a miracle overthrows the laws of nature, and the caring providence of God is him sovereignly working out events to our good and certainly to his glory. And both were evident in the events leading up to the birth of Isaac. It was not only guided by the caring providence of God, but it was an outright uh, miracle, literally an act that defied the laws of nature. It was a miracle. And what I'd like to do uh, to begin this morning is sort of a recap of why that birth, why this birth looks impossible. Uh, just kind of a review in those early chapters of Genesis there. And we see in Genesis chapter 11 that Sarah was barren. She was uh, barren from the beginning. She was incapable of producing offspring, which meant in order for this glorious promise of Isaac to actually come true, it would have to be a conception miracle. And that brought us to Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic covenant, which you know is the promise of land and and seed, and blessing. God is making this promise, which is so amazing, after the knowledge that Sarah was barren. By the way, she's 65 at this point, and Abraham is 75. And if you think on this for a moment, God had closed her womb, and then made the big promise known as the Abrahamic covenant. If Abraham believes this promise, it will be a believing not just in the ability of God to predict what is going to happen in the future, but a believing in the power of God to create a future that is humanly impossible. To believe that God is going to perform a miracle, to act against the laws of nature. God's purpose here is to do what is humanly impossible, mission impossible. Genesis 15 then brought us the first human solution, and it is refused. It's a, a legal error, Eliezer of Damascus. And you see the, the first natural thought Abraham has is that God's going to fulfill this promise this way to make him a great nation. It's got to happen this way by raising up an heir to him through his slave, Eliezer, which was a well-known legal practice in his day. But what did God say? God said no. No, this is not the way. And so human solution number one is refused. We get to Genesis 16 and we see another human solution, which is also refused. And this is using a concubine, you know her name, Hagar, right? To get the promise to come true, which evidently results in the uh, birth of um, uh, Ishmael. But again here, God says no. And that brings us to these remaining chapters here, Genesis 18 to 21. And we speak of age here because we learn they're both advanced in age. I mean, Sarah is 90 years old. And then laughter because you remember that Sarah laughs. 
and doubt because Sarah doubts. But Isaac is born. He's born. It's a, a miracle of God. And Genesis 18, 14 says it best. Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? And then we have Isaac's birth announcement. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 21, Genesis 21 here. I love this. We can trace God's trustworthiness from the beginning of Abraham's story all the way to this blessed event. And it's Isaac's birth announcement. And it's found in the first three verses of Genesis 21. Amen. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Verse 2, so Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Isaac. And so from Genesis 21 today, we will now turn to look at Genesis chapter 22. And we'll move from the miraculous birth of Isaac to the trust test for Abraham. The trust test for Abraham. You know, I have to admit, when I originally preached that first message on New Year's Eve, I saw Genesis chapter 22. I was so tempted even just to try to touch it in that message, and I couldn't. And um, certainly, uh, by God's grace, here I am with that opportunity to preach it to you. Uh, Really, it's his ultimate test. Abraham's ultimate test. It is this time of testing that we want to examine together this morning, the 22nd chapter of Genesis, which if you look at your Bible here, you'll see it's probably titled, known as the offering or the sacrifice of Isaac. Well, let's read this account. Look at uh, Genesis 22, the first 19 verses. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go up over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Verse 7 here, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, 
Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Verse 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived in Beersheba. I'm guessing... A number of you enjoy the Olympics. The Olympics. Our, our family certainly does. We have the uh, Summer Olympic Games taking place in Paris this year, and I can't wait to watch that. Uh, but I want to take you back to the 2010 Winter Olympics. Uh, and it's a long time ago now. Uh, 2010 is, is, what, 14 years and it was held in Vancouver, but there's a powerful story with the Slovenian cross-country skier Petra Medic. Petra Medic. And early on, uh, Petra was uh, warming up for her cross-country skiing race. It was one of her medal favorites. And she crashed during the warm-up, uh, falling 10 feet into a creek bed full of rocks. And she ended up breaking four ribs. Uh, not realizing that she had broken her ribs at that point, but in great pain, Petra decides to race anyway. She was heard telling the Olympic volunteers who came to her aid, take me to the starting line, to the starting line. I got to get to the starting line. And you can just imagine what racing with four broken ribs must have been like. Could anything more be painful? Could, could there be anything more? Uh, so she ends up skiing her qualifying round, uh, quarterfinals, semifinals, and believe it or not, as the day wore on, she seemed to have some strength. She gained some, gained some strength, and then she ultimately went on to race the final. Now, get this. During the final, one of her ribs punctures her lung, and her lung collapses. This is during the race. You can YouTube this whole story in your own time, but Petra ended up finishing in the bronze medal position. I mean, unbelievable. Talk about grip, grit. I mean, man up here, right? These athletes are tough. How about woman up? I mean, she is tough. And you know, under normal circumstances, returning to our country with a bronze medal, eh, it might have been a big disappointment. She, she came as a favorite to win two golds in 2010. So a bronze really was not her aim. But I have here for you to look at this iconic photograph of her on the medal podium. She refused to go to the hospital until she got her medal. And it's just amazing to me. She's standing there with her doctor and an ambulance tech. 
And of course, they immediately take her to the hospital. They uh, reattach her lung to the inside of her rib cage, and she is fine. But that is not why I'm telling you this story. Not even close as to why I'm telling you this story. Nope. Here's the most important part. So later, she returns and does a press conference. This is a, a few days later. And a press person says, Petra, you know, that was unbelievable what happened yesterday. So sorry. And perhaps you could tell us what was going on in your mind because that must have been so painful. And she looked at the person and said, you know, the pain that I went through yesterday was nothing compared to the pain, suffering, and sacrifice that I've gone through over the last 25 years, training and racing to reach my dream. What an answer. What a terrific answer. I mean, it bears repeating. You know, the pain that I went through yesterday was nothing compared to the pain, suffering, and sacrifice that I've gone through over the last 25 years training and racing to reach my dream. And you know what? That is the story of Abraham and Isaac. I mean, Isaac was born 25 years after Abraham received the promise. 25 years of, of learning to trust in this promise from God that a, a miracle would take place in the birth of Isaac. 25 years of suffering through his uh, own experiences, his own failures, only to be face to face with an infant, the child of promise of the Abrahamic covenant with Isaac, the one in which land, seed, and blessing would continue to flow. And it was 25 years until Abraham and Sarah saw this promise, this, this miracle take place. But those tests, they are nothing compared to what we've just read in chapter 22. This text tells us in verse 1 that God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. But not just any test. Guys, it was the test. The test. The trust test for Abraham. And here is why this test was so important. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham to leave his past. But here... In Genesis 22, God is calling him to leave his future. What is it that Abraham is really trusting in? I mean, it's an appalling command, really. A trust test for Abraham that is met with only silence. There are no uh, assurances here from God, no certainty of the future. Just do it. Do what? Verse 2. Take now your son. And if the words had stopped there, you and I both know which tent he would have marched towards, right? Okay, here's Ishmael, right? That's probably what he would have done. But you and I know that this is not what was asked of Abraham. This verb, take, has three direct objects. And, and these three move from the unspecific to the specific, from the uh, indefinite to the definite, as if with each step, more and more trust is required. The verb is take your son. Which one? I have two. Your only son, whom you love. Ishmael is the only son of Hagar, 
I, 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 I love them both. You know who I mean. Isaac, the command of God is undeniable. And Abraham could not believe his own ears. Could you imagine what was going through the mind of this man? Wait, I, I have known this God. I left the land of my fathers to follow after this God. This God, the God of all creation, has issued an order that seems to contradict all the promises and, and all the hopes that have motivated me for decades. I mean, my focus has been on Isaac. My hope has been on Isaac. My joy has been, admittedly, centered on Isaac. How could this possibly be true? Could God be like all the other deities of the ancient world after all? I mean, child sacrifice? Did something get lost in the translation? This reminds me of uh, something silly I once uh, read from a friend. He was texting his wife, and his wife is pregnant, and she is out shopping with uh, some ladies to purchase some maternity clothing. And she found something really nice that she liked, and so she put it on, and she sent a picture with the text. You know what the text says, right? Does this make me look fat? Does this make me look fat? And so he begins to reply on his cell phone, types the letter N, and then a bunch of O's. No! But when he went to hit send, spell check changed the N to a glorious M, and the text that she received was moo. <laughs> you could just imagine when she received that and when he realized what he had sent. And he, you know, guys aren't that quick on texting anyway. So he's probably sitting there going, ha, 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 I got to call her. I got to call her. He goes, honey, I didn't mean, I mean, I mean, I mean that. He's still alive today. Just want to let you know. I don't know how he recovered from that one, but he is alive. But there are no mistakes in this text. Every letter of every word in this account seems to have been chosen for maximum impact. Look at verse 3. I mean, it's such an understatement, which is what we see so often in the scriptures. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, we've got to ask the question here, why did he rise up early in the morning? Some of the commentators give different answers. One such answer, answer is that Abraham was a near-perfect man. I mean, when God asked whatever he would ask, Abraham stood tall. He clicked his heels, said, aye, aye, sir, and set the alarm clock for the next morning. But that's utter nonsense. How often do we see uh, Abraham attempting to control situations throughout his life? No, that's, uh, that's not my wife. That's uh, my, um, my sister. Yeah, she's my sister, right? I'm grateful for imperfect people in the Bible, aren't you? Uh, what we do know is that verse 3 is perhaps the most dramatic illustration of trust in the Bible. It's not a blind leap. Abraham had to wrestle with this request all through the night, overnight. Perhaps this is why, in part, he got up early, because he couldn't sleep. Look again at what it says here. So Abraham rose up early. That's alone. That's by himself. 
went to the stable and pulled the, the uh, saddle off of the wall, placing it on his donkey, preparing the animal for the journey ahead. And you got to remember that Abraham is one of the wealthiest men in Canaan. His house is full of servants. If he needed to go somewhere, he could just call his personal Uber. Oh, and by the way, on top of that, I need some firewood. So be sure to split some and place it on the donkey as well, right? Yet we are told that he did this. He saddled the donkey. And the man who most certainly qualified for a senior citizen's discount here had an ax and began to split the wood for the sacrifice of the son of promise. And we can only guess as to why he did this. I mean, I, I can see him swinging this ax uh, with sweat and tears. I can see him picking up the wood, struggling to make sense of the request. Maybe replaying the command that was spoken to him directly to him by the one true God. It's safe to assume that Abraham worked his way through these words. And part of the reason I say this is because he was nothing like his nephew Lot. You know Lot. Nothing like Lot. Look back at chapter 13 for a moment. Turn back to Genesis 13. It says beginning in verse 5 of chapter 13 that now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Lot had a lot. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. Verse 7. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. In verse 10, Lot, living by sight, lifted up his eyes and saw the valley, all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. And in verse 11, what did he do? Lot chose for himself all the land. All that land. Lot lived his life not by faith, but by sight. It would impact his entire family. And this is a a good reminder for us to be careful not to do the same. To be consistent in our character. Steadfast and trusting an unknown future to a known God. And this was Abraham. I mean, concerned? Yes. Yes, I would think so. But also committed to the cause. After a life of ups and downs, I would add that he was even confident in the promises of God. You ask, but was he? Well, it was Abraham who obeyed. He didn't delay. His response was one of quick obedience. And what an example for us as Christians. If only we could learn from this and do the same in our lives to to calm down and, and quickly obey. It also says here back in chapter 22, back in chapter 22, that along with Isaac, Abraham made the journey with two of his young men with him. This is very interesting, these two men. Jewish tradition identifies them, get this, as Eliezer and Ishmael. 
That's Jewish tradition. It's pure speculation. But could you imagine the two, Eliezer and Ishmael, that God rejected as human solutions to his promise along for the ride? Could you imagine if it really was those two individuals? Verses 4 through 6 again. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Abraham was not only commanded to execute the sacrifice, that's important, but he was to escort his son of promise up the side of Mount Moriah. He would walk with him the whole way. I can't conceive what this must have been like. I mean, the closest illustration I have to this is death row, perhaps death row. When a prisoner would walk what they call the last mile, it's not really a mile, but the the distance from the, the cell to the chair where they have Um, A chaplain is reading scripture by their side, except this wasn't a three-minute walk. This wasn't a three-minute journey. It was three whole days. I mean, perhaps we could compare it to saying goodbye to a, a loved one who had been suffering for some time. Or even, if I dare say this, a beloved pet. You know, dogs are such a common grace of God. Not cats, but dogs. And that final ride to the clinic, if you've ever done this with your dog by your side, I don't even want to get into it. I'll get all emotional up here. And we can't even help the animal. We have to have someone else do it for us. It's so difficult. But you and I know it still, it still doesn't come close in comparison to Abraham's submission here, to Abraham's last mile with Isaac. God wasn't asking for his dog. He said, take now your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And his responses went beyond obedience to the point of worship. Do you see this? Verse 5, we will worship and return to you. Worship and return. Worship, ascribing worth to God. Abraham was planning to, to praise the God who had asked him to offer the ultimate sacrifice because at the center of this, albeit insane request, is Yahweh. Is Yahweh. In fact, later the practice would be condemned in the law of Moses for the only sacrifice of a human being which God has required and accepted was that of his only son. More on that shortly. But not only worship, but return. Return in that it was not Abraham's part to figure out the what, when, why, and how this would all work out. God had said to sacrifice Isaac and he must obey. But he believed that he and Isaac would return together. Now, I would suspect that Isaac was already dead in Abraham's mind. Ever since the time that God had said, offer him as a sacrifice, Isaac was dead in his head. I think so. I, I suspect that was the only way to continue through this process. How God was going to bring Isaac back and maintain him as the son of pro- uh, promise. Well, that is God's responsibility. But we do get an inside scoop in Galatians 3 and Hebrews 11. And you don't need to ter- turn there, but both texts, Galatians 3, Hebrews 11, 
have the luxury of looking back at the event. And they tell us that Abraham not only truly obeyed God, but he believed God could and would bring him back to life if he willed. He believed that him and Isaac would be together walking back if God willed. Yahweh is the great promise keeper, and he certainly can bring this lad back to life if he so chooses. And you know, in studying this passage, I found that there are those who have noted casually in their commentaries that Isaac was a young boy, perhaps even uh, preteen. But the word lad in uh, the Hebrew, nahar, is used to speak of males anywhere from uh, 15 to 25 years old. So Isaac was certainly old enough to carry the wood, and he had within him the strength and power to resist Abraham if he so willed on his own here to do that. But instead, look at verses 7 and 8. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? In essence, Dad, did you forget something? I mean, I, I see the fire. I have the wood, but where's the lamb? In verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. We cannot escape the drama of what lies between each of these sentences. These are penetrating questions from Isaac. Abraham had to respond, but with what? Lord, I've got to tell him sooner or later, but what will I tell him? And so there is, there's, tension that's here in the white space of our Bibles between verses 7 and 8. You can, you can feel it there. We know that there is the promise of God that he will bless all through Isaac. But is this the end of the Abrahamic covenant? And there is also the practical reality that Abraham, as Isaac's father, would want to keep the situation calm and, and comfort his, his son here. And he does so by pointing back to God's provision. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Don't worry, Isaac. God will provide. That name is Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. Back to our outline here. God is to be Abraham's provision. God is to be Abraham's provision. For years, it it was Isaac who served as the physical manifestation of God's provision here. But that wasn't enough. That's not going to cut it. And he could easily become an idol for Abraham. Easily. I mean, who or even what is to be the focus of Abraham's trust? God is to be Abraham's provision. God is to be Abraham's provision. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. God instructs Abraham to build an altar in which he will place his hopes, his his dreams, his future, all on the altar. Because... I want to see you tested. The trust test is what I have for you, Abraham. And 
you know, we have no record of the conversation that took place in order for this to happen. I mean, at some point, Abraham had to take the ropes and look at his son and say, lie still, as he tied him up. He would tie his son's feet together. He would have tied his son's hands together. There would be an exchange of looks between the two. What would that have been like? Did he just pick him up and place him on the altar? Did he get on the altar? What questions must have arose in the mind of Isaac? What tears must have flowed once again from Abraham? And as, as Isaac is now bound and he's horizontal, he's laying upon this altar of sacrifice, we have verse 10. Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. Picture this, right? But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know, now I know you passed the trust test. Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. The faithful father named Abraham would put down the knife. Abraham would untie his submissive son, the son of promise. And I suspect there was a a long embrace there that was taking place. And together, they would worship God. They would worship God together. He had passed the trust test. The provision from God would be that of a ram caught in the thicket by his horns, verse 13. And God would reaffirm the land, seed, and blessing aspects of his original promise of the Abrahamic covenant as we read it in uh, verses 15 to 18. All because Abraham was responsive to God's character and calling. He was submissive to God's will. He was obeying him. And most importantly, he was trusting him, not Isaac, as his provider, as his uh, provision. Jehovah Jireh. Who do you look to as your provider? Think about this. Before you answer in your mind, I mean, think about it. Isaac represented prosperity and protection for Abraham. I mean, who is going to take care of the herds? Who's going to plant the fields and bring in the crops? It is going to be Isaac and the servants who will take care of them. I mean, he represented his prosperity, his, his protection. And that can easily become our own way of thinking, our own trust. It slips in there, <laughs> our own idol. But God is to be our ultimate provision. God is to be our ultimate provision as well. That is one of the real takeaways here for us this morning. Be careful where you place your trust, your ultimate trust. I mean, it's easy to do. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. How would you have performed in such a test? No warning, just a word, no advance notice, just a test of the emergency broadcast system, Do you know what I'm talking about? The emergency broadcast system. You know, this is a test I grew up with. We did not have flat screens on the wall, right? And we did not have remotes. 
And the TV, it was literally like a piece of furniture, the TV. I mean, this thing was huge. So it even came with a record player on top with uh, these mesh speakers on the sides. And if you are under 30 years old, you have no clue what I'm even talking about this morning. In fact, you probably didn't even know that our TV, which was our three channels, turned off at midnight and then came back on at 6 a.m. in the morning. And so at night as a kid, as a very little kid, we'd be watching The Muppet Show. I love The Muppets. We would be watching The Muppet Show. And in the middle of the program, this annoying noise would come and these colored bars would pop up with a voice. You know what I'm talking about? This is a test. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. And the, sra- the sounds are so strange. They're worse than like an AOL modem. You know what I'm talking about? And you're way back on the couch and there's no way to get this off quickly. There's nothing you can do. There's no remote. There's no mute. The only remote you had was probably a sibling trying to get to the TV just to turn it off, you were just waiting to get back to your regularly scheduled programming. And you'd miss it, by the way. Whatever was on didn't pause. It was still going on. So when that thing is going on, you're missing the Muppet Show. You're missing part of the Muppet Show. All the millennials and Gen Zs in the room are like, what kind of world did you live in? What is that? But that was the test. That was the test. It would pop up every so often, and it would take you by surprise to prepare you for a real emergency when there would be a real crisis. Where would you go? Jehovah Jireh is doing the same here. The trust test for Abraham. And in a sense, for each of us, again, where are you placing your trust? For God is to be our ultimate provision. But that's not the end of the events on Mount Moriah. God provided a sacrifice to save Isaac, yes. And that action was a foreshadowing. It's a picture of what God gave. 2,000 years later, the name of Mount Moriah is changed. It's called Mount Zion. It's inhabited by many people, first the Jebusites, and then as the capital of the Israelites, and Moriah becomes Jerusalem. And here, God took his son, his only son, the son whom he loved, Jesus. Jesus was taken up the mountain. Jesus was bound for the sacrifice. Jesus would watch as God Almighty raised his knife. He would provide the lamb as a substitute for our sins. The knife was raised by almighty God. But this time, no one was yelling, stop, stop. As the faithful father took his son's life, his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Our salvation flows from him. Our redemption originates with him and his will. We trust God to be our ultimate provision, our ultimate provider, trusting in Christ, his, his son's death on the mountain for our sins. And without that trust, the benefits of his death, they're not yours. But as a Christian, a Christian is one who trusts God, who lives by faith for the just 
shall live by faith. I want to end our time together this morning marveling at the picture of what God has given us. The picture that is really contained here in Genesis 22. It's a foreshadowing, as I said, from Isaac to our Savior, to Jesus. And I'm only going to give you a few of the elements. There are many more than these that we see this foreshadowing. But you look here and you see that there's a miraculous birth. And under Isaac here, it's Abraham and Sarah's miraculous birth that takes place for Isaac. Jesus was born of a virgin. Miraculous birth, Mary. Isaac is called by God Abraham's only son. He is the child of promise. And Jesus is God's only son whom he loved, who who lived a sinless and perfect life. You have Abraham believing for three days that Isaac was to be dead. It was a a three-day journey. And our Savior would be dead three days. He paid in full our sin debt with his death upon the cross. Abraham and Isaac, they were accompanied by two servants. Again, Jewish tradition points to Eliezer and Ishmael. We don't know. Jesus was accompanied by two criminals, right? Crucified with two others. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Luke 23, 43. Isaac carried the wood for his sacrifice, Jesus carried the wooden cross for his sacrifice, for the sins ultimately of all who would believe. Isaac willingly submitted. Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's will. Matthew 26, 39. Yet not as I will, but as you will. To be sacrificed on a mountain in Moriah by his father Abraham was the trust test there for Isaac. Jesus was sacrificed by his father's will near Mount Moriah. There's only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham believed he would be risen from the dead, that Isaac would rise from the dead, if that event did indeed happen, which it did not. But the Son of God was risen from the dead. He walked out of that tomb a risen Savior, Lord of heaven and earth. Think on these truths. Think on these truths. The shadow cast in this chapter reaches all the way ahead to the cross of Calvary. It's a a powerful picture of God as our ultimate provision. And so I end asking you the question, is he yours? Is he your ultimate provision? Have you placed your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? May this be the day if that is not the case. Come see one of us offline. There are people sitting around you that love you and care for you. I would love to talk to you. One of our elders would love to talk to you if you have questions about this. May this be today. Don't let this day pass without allowing that to happen. Cry out for mercy to a merciful God for his saving. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we trust 
in your promises. We rejoice in your faithfulness. Uh, we glory in your goodness. We, we hope in your word. We believe in your son. We rest in your grace. Father, I, I pray that if there's any person in this room that has never settled it, that has never settled with the truth of the gospel, that has never trusted you for the forgiveness of their sins, that has never declared you as their ultimate uh, provider for the salvation, for the saving, for the redemption that is so rich in mercy and free in grace. Father, if there's such a person here today, and we know there are, we pray that you would drive him or her to their knees, that they would place their trust, their faith in you alone. Thank you that we can go about the difficult days of our lives with a hope, with a hope that has a name. That's the song we'll be singing here in a moment. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. And it is in this name, his name, that we pray these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.